we've been in a series, we've been kind of talking these last couple of weeks just on this whole idea of the big church. And um, we've been kind of looking at how the very first church in the very first century, the very first believers uh, functioned. And the reason we're calling this series the big church is not because we're a big church, but because I believe the church is a big deal. The church that Jesus came to birth and to launch back there in that first century is a very big deal. And the challenge is to think of the church, to kind of understand, to experience, to view the first church the same way those first Christians did in that very first century. Because it did not start off as a building. The very first church did not begin as an institution or a denomination. It didn't start off as a hierarchy, but rather the first church was launched as a movement over 2,000 years ago. That very first church in the very first century was launched, it was started, it was birthed around a very, very simple yet a very profound and powerful message, and that was found there in that creed. And that is, Jesus Christ came to earth claiming to be God in the flesh, sent by the Father to redeem mankind from their sins through the shedding and his death upon the cross, that Jesus died and then three days later, as he predicted, he would rise from the grave to eternal life as proof that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, that he was also uh, validation, that he was able and had accomplished the forgiveness of sins. And to assure us that God's anger and wrath against sin had been completely satisfied. When we make that profession in faith in Jesus Christ, that he is exactly who he claims to be, that very same power that raised Christ from the dead, the scripture says, that power comes to dwell in us. And that is the message that galvanized, it kind of unified those very first Christians in that very first century. So those first Christians in the first church kind of rallied around an event. And we've been looking at that event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As a matter of fact, today we're going to open the scriptures and and we're going to see it was all about this one event, the resurrection, that they just would not give up on, they would not be quiet about. As we're going to see today, it was their bold, unapologetic sharing of what they witnessed concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that message often got them in trouble. They were persecuted, they suffered because of that, no matter what Rome or the religious authorities did to shut them down or to shut them up, as we found out last week, just made them all the bolder and all the more determined to share this message of the resurrection. And last week we saw how they prayed and asked God for boldness. They also asked God, would you just stretch forth your hand 
And God, would you perform signs and miracles and wonders among unbelievers, not inside the church, but outside the church. And God, would you do that as just a way to manifest your presence, to make your name known among the people. And so we pick up where we left off last week. Before we do that, let me just kind of make one observation. I think most of us here would agree we live in probably one of the safest countries in the world. It may be far from perfect, but if you've ever had the opportunity to travel outside of the United States, and maybe you're familiar with other countries, I think most of us would agree that we live in one of the safest places in the whole world. And yet, at the same time, we are some of the most fearful and worrisome people in the whole world. We live in one of the safest nations in the world, and yet we are one of the most fearful and worrisome nations in the world. I mean, everybody has to wear a helmet, fasten your seatbelt, lock your doors, don't go out after dark. We have all kinds of insurance and lawyers to protect us from every potential adversity. And all this does is it just feeds and it increases our fears. And as these increasing fears kind of creep into our Christianity, creep into our faith, one of the things it does is it robs us of our boldness. The safer and the more secure we try to become in our surroundings, the less bolder we become. A lot of you in here this morning, you kind of work in places that maybe are neutral or kind of unfriendly. Some of you may even work in places that are just downright hostile toward Christianity. If you were to go into your workplace and you were to mention that you were a Christian or you talk about your faith in Jesus Christ, some of you would be reprimanded. Some of you would be taken in and written up. Some of you may even be terminated. So we say nothing because it's really better to play it safe. Don't get me wrong, I understand that. But again, you can see how safe we play it. We wanna be careful. We wanna be politically correct. We don't wanna be offensive. I get that. But the downside is it robs us of our boldness. There are people in other countries that practice other religions and they understand if they ever turn, if they ever make that profession of faith in Jesus Christ and become a Christian, most likely they will lose their jobs, their families, their homes, their standing in the community. Many of them will be persecuted. Some of them will pay the ultimate price and even lose their lives. So when you compare us to Christians living in other countries, you can see how they kind of look at us. They look at our American churches. They look at us as American Christians. And it's no wonder they think we're so shallow and ineffective and anemic. The first sign or even the Slightest hint of loss or discomfort, persecution, or suffering because of what we believe 
and our witness for Christ, we kind of just clam up tight and just get in line. Look at what's currently happening in the Middle East, particularly in Iraq. Regarding the persecution of Christians by ISIL, ISIS, Christians, including children, are being beheaded simply because of what they believe about Jesus Christ. And their churches are being burned and destroyed. About a month ago, ISIL released a video showing the militant group beheading 21 Egyptian Christians that were kidnapped in Libya. There's rampant persecution taking place all across the Middle East, targeting Christians and Christian churches. Compared to American churches, American Christians, we've lost our edge. We've lost our boldness. And we've allowed our fears and our our worries to erode and erode and erode our boldness, our witness, our stand, and our proclamation for Jesus Christ. There was a time in history when the local church was just about one simple thing. There was a time when the local church was all about the belief that everybody spent eternity somewhere and that through the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that in that God has sent us an answer, the response to that dilemma. And there were people who were willing, gladly, to lay down their lives if necessary to proclaim that message of hope and salvation. There was a time when the church just lived so open-handed. The very last thing they worried about were themselves because they were so concerned about the people around them, particularly those who were unbelievers. There was a time when the local church was saturated by a kind of love that people outside, unbelievers, looked at them, looked at the church with respect. There was an admiration that they had towards those Christians. And there was just a sense of awe. They didn't want to become one of them. The price was too steep, but there was an admiration and awe. The outside unbelieving world looked at them, looked at these first century believers and how they lived. And Luke tells us, and we looked at this last week, that those Christians had tremendous favor in the community because there was just something so powerful, so winsome, so beautifully attractive about them and the way that they lived their faith. And when you compare us to that, and I'm not, I'm not talking you here, I'm talking the church in general here in the United States, We've lost that. And I believe one of the reasons we've lost that is we're so blessed. Not that you should ever feel guilty for being blessed, but I think we need to be responsible. So one of the things we need to do in this generation, if we're ever going to get back to and be more like that first church there in the first century, there in the book of Acts, is we gotta ramp up our boldness and our witness for Jesus Christ. 
I appreciate so many of you shared stories where you did take that step of boldness this week. Some of you did that in your workplace. Some of you did that with neighbors. Some of you did that with family members. And you kind of emailed me or you called and said, I just want to share with you what I did this week just to ramp up, to amp up my boldness. I'm like, yeah, awesome. Go, God. We have to get rid of this fear, of this worry, robbing us of our boldness. Because we really, honestly, have nothing to lose and no one to fear. So I want to pick up where we left off last week. Peter and Paul get arrested. They're in the temple preaching about Jesus being the son of God. They're they're eyewitnesses to his resurrection from the dead. And as a result of that, they're arrested. They spend the night in jail. They come out the next morning, gather with about 120 other followers and disciples of Jesus. Remember, they pray for boldness. They said, God, just stretch forth your hand to heal. God, would you manifest signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And they just go out into the streets And they just keep preaching boldly the message of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And so as a result of this, more and more people begin to turn and embrace this message. Word kind of starts spreading in and around Jerusalem that God is moving mightily through miracles and wonders through the disciples. And hundreds and hundreds of people from surrounding communities begin to flock to Jerusalem. They're bringing the sick. They bring people who are lame. They bring the blind to the disciples so they can lay hands on them and be healed. And as a result of that, the city of Jerusalem, that's already full of people because it's a Jewish feast time, there are now even more and more people because of what the disciples are doing and how God is manifesting his power and his presence among them. And while all of this is going on, the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, they're trying to manage and control this very, very delicate balance of power that was between them and Rome. They shared that balance of power between them and the Roman government. And the Jewish religious leaders, they understood that Rome only gave them so much room to kind of operate They could only do so much. They could only go so far before Rome would kind of step in and kind of redirect. In some cases, they would kind of just squash whatever kind of movement was happening among the Jewish people. And so the chief priests, the Jewish religious leaders, they were always trying to kind of keep this balance between their power and the power of the Roman government. And up to this point, the Jewish religious leaders, they were kind of the people that got all of the attention from the Jewish people because they were the experts in the law. They were experts in religion. If you were gonna know how to approach God, they were kind of the the, the go-to, the the know-how people. And suddenly, they're looking around. Nobody's showing up for their services All of a sudden, nobody is asking them any more questions. Suddenly, there's empty seats where once the seats were filled to capacity, and suddenly, they're just not the go-to guys anymore. 
And all of a sudden, they're standing there among themselves, and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, where did everybody go? How come nobody is coming to the temple services anymore? And what they come to discover is that their flocks are now going to where the disciples are. And the result of this, Luke tells us that the religious leaders, they became so jealous, they became so envious of the disciples of Jesus. I mean, they're jealous because the people are drawn to. They love the disciples of Jesus. And their numbers are growing day by day. And the religious leaders see this and they just become angry and jealous. So they have Peter and John arrested But not just them this time. They have all of the other apostles arrested as well. And their thinking is, okay, we got the ringleaders. We've kind of got the main people who are responsible for the uprising happening here in Jerusalem. And we're going to put an end to this once and for all. Now the Bible tells us that an angelic being comes and opens the door and all of the apostles that had been arrested just walk out. And the very next morning, the Jewish religious leaders, the lawyers in particular, send to bring these jailed apostles to them and they discover they're no longer there. The next thing they hear is the apostles are back in the temple and they're preaching about Jesus and they're teaching about the resurrection. And now the religious leaders, they're absolutely furious. And so they get the temple guard together and they instruct them, you go and you re-arrest the apostles. And Luke says when the temple guard goes to arrest him, there's so many people flocked around Peter and John, Andrew, James, and all the other apostles that the guards are afraid to do anything. In fact, they are so afraid to arrest the apostles because they fear the crowd will turn on them and stone them. And so the temple guard kind of elbow their way through the crowd and they kind of get up to Peter and and one of the guards says to Peter, Peter, we were sent to arrest you, but we kind of got a problem here and we're just wondering, could you arrest yourself? True. Uh, Because we're kind of afraid to do that for fear that we will be stoned by the people. And so Peter, the nice guy, pauses what they were doing, and they accompany the temple guard back to the Sanhedrin. They place themselves under arrest in order to give an account for what they are doing. Acts 5, beginning in chapter, uh, Acts 5, beginning in verse 27, is where the story picks up. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. These are the lawyers to be questioned by the high priest. Now, the high priest is the top dog. Okay, his word is the binding law in this environment. And there it says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Now, this is so interesting. They don't even want to say the name Jesus. It says, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. 
Now this is about two months after the resurrection, and the Sanhedrin are basically saying to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, look, I mean, the way you tell the story, it makes it look like we're guilty. This is the high priest speaking. He says, you make it sound like the way you tell the story that we are guilty of this man's death. And I'm sure Peter is kind of standing there and he's thinking, that's because you are. I'm Peter, remember? I was there. This was just two months ago. Who are you kidding? You had Jesus arrested. You tried him. You found him guilty. You were the ones who had him crucified. That makes you guilty. Like I said last week, it really bothered. It just got under the skin of the Jewish religious leaders to hear Peter continually link them and accuse them for the death of Jesus. Peter goes on in verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed Okay, there it is again, salt in the wound, by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses. We were there. We saw this. In other words, you're saying this isn't something we've heard. This isn't even something we just believe. This is something we saw. We were eyewitnesses to these events we preach about. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter basically kind of just replies to the Jewish religious leaders by telling them they're just going to continually preach this message every opportunity they get. Verse 33, when they, the religious leaders, heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Now again, this shouldn't surprise any of us. I mean, this is what they did with the ringleader, Jesus. So they're thinking, okay, we got rid of one. We'll just get rid of 12 more, and hopefully it'll bring all of this to an end. And then, something kind of fascinating happened. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all of the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the apostles, these men, be put outside for a while. And so the apostles are taken out, and, and he says, basically, guys, you know what? Before we decide this, before we go ahead with what we're kind of thinking, um, before we decide to execute another group of people and make 12 more martyrs instead of one, he says, I got an idea. Ask them to step out of the room, and I'm going to share my idea with you. And so the apostles go out. And Gamaliel addresses the Sanhedrin, the high priest, in verse 35. And he says, men of Israel, consider carefully. Think carefully what you intend to do 
to these men. Some time ago, Theatus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. So Gamaliel, he, he says, hey guys, kind of just think back, remember with me, kind of a little bit of a history lesson here. You remember Theatos? Apparently, he stirred up a group of people, had 400 followers. They were going to do something unique and new. And Rome said, I don't think so, not here. And they squashed him like a bug. The movement went away. And at that point, all of the other leaders in, in, in this room with Gamaliel, they're kind of thinking, yeah, yeah, I remember him. You're right. Yeah, yeah, we remember that. Rome took care of that. Rome didn't let that go anywhere. And then Gamaliel, he continues in verse 37. He says, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. Now, we do know a good deal about Judas the Galilean. There's extra biblical literature that kind of talks about him. He lived at a time when the governor of Syria decided he was going to do a census. And the purpose of the census was he wanted to figure out how to raise the taxes. He was going to figure out how much money are the people making and how many people have moved in to the area. But Judas, the Galilean, basically said, we're not going to participate in this census. You can do it, but we are not going along with your census. So he started a movement. In fact, the people that followed Judas the Galilean were a group first known as the Zealots. Some of you, if you're Bible people, have heard of that word, zealot, before. That's where it began. These were zealots. In fact, one of the followers of Judas the Galilean became one of Jesus' disciples, a man by the name of Simon the Zealot. That's where that came from. So at this point, all the religious leaders, they're kind of tracking with Gamaliel here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we remember Judas the Galilean. We remember what he tried to do. This was about 6 AD or 7 AD when that happened. And all of the Jewish religious leaders, they remember that event. Yeah, Rome kind of stepped in and said, oh no, we're not going there. And they squashed him and his movement. Now the implication Gamaliel is making here is he's saying, remember guys, we didn't even get involved in this. I mean, we, there are, our fingerprints aren't even on any of this. Remember how it was, guys? But remember, if we had participated in any of those events, we risked losing the people so we kind of just stood back and we let Rome take care of it then. How about we just step back again and let Rome take care of this? This is kind of what he is proposing to these religious leaders. Verse 38, therefore in the present case, he says, this whole Jesus movement, this Christian thing, this resurrection thing, he said, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. And this is interesting, he said, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Now his implication there is, if this is just another movement, another uprising with people who have some radical new idea, it's going to fail. 
It'll go down in ashes because Rome is not going to stand by idly and let this succeed. You see, the Romans in the first century, they weren't against Christianity. They were against any movement, any gathering that could at all disrupt or displace their rule and authority. So Gamaliel was right. He's going, you know what? If this is just another human movement, come on, against the might and power of Rome, there's no possible way this will succeed. But listen to his next insightful comment in verse 39. He said, but if it, this running around talking about Jesus and the resurrection event is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. And you will only find yourself fighting against God. That's wisdom. And that wisdom, it says, persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. I think we all understand flogging, especially if you saw the passion of the Christ. I mean, flogging was you took a cat of nine tails and and you tied in some pieces of wood or, or, or metal, sharp, jagged metal or broken glass, and the person was beaten with these cat of nine tails, and they would just take that, and they would embed those, that jagged steel, glass, bone, whatever they're using, into the individual's flesh, and then they would just rip it away, and it would just begin to shard the human flesh on the front and on the back. And so for several hours, the apostles stood in line, waiting and watching the guards I mean, this is permanently scarring their bodies because of something that they had seen, something that they were witnessing and testifying about. This is significant because every time they would change their shirt, every time they bathed, it would be a visual reminder of that day there in the temple that they were flogged. Put yourself in their place. How would you respond to that? You see, the temptation, we read this verse, we just want to quickly move on to the next verse. But before you do that, realize this was ours. This probably took half the day. This was watching and listening to your closest Friends, wince, scream out in pain, and knowing you are next. Because of something you said you believe, and more importantly, something you said you saw. You see, if it were us, the very thought of this would have been the end. And like I said, if we were responsible in our day and age, where we are at in our version of Christianity, I'm not sure the gospel would have made it out of the first century. But listen to their response in verse 40. 
Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Ready for this? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You're permanently disfigured for the rest of your life. People will see the scars and they will know you were flogged and you were flogged probably because you were a criminal. See, this is where those of us who are Christians in some ways just need to get on our knees and repent because we're so afraid something negative is going to happen to us because we're Christians. Because of what we believe. Our first century forefathers, the very first Christians, you know what their response was? Are you kidding? To have suffered? to have lost something, to have given up something, to be permanently disfigured because of the name of Jesus? Are you kidding? It's the thing I am most proud of. He gave his life for me. I gave up the skin on my back for him. He gave his life for me. I gave up my reputation for him. He gave up his life for me. I gave up a bonus. I gave up a job. I gave up a promotion for him. Are you kidding? It's the thing I'm most proud of. That's how they thought. That's how they responded. Verse 42, day after day in the temple courts. It's not like they went to another city where they weren't known where they could kind of just blend in. They went back into the very places where they had been arrested. And from house to house, they never stopped teaching and preaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Wow. Incredible. What do you do with that? How do we respond to that? What happened to us? Where did we go? Here's what I think, going back to last Sunday. I truly believe if you're, if you're serious and you're asking God for more boldness to be his witness out in the world, not inside the church, that's the easiest place to do this. If you're asking God to make you bolder on the outside among unbelievers, we are also going to have to be prepared to rejoice in what that boldness produces, both in the good and in the bad. I'm just telling you, with an increased boldness for Jesus, there's going to come times of suffering, of persecution, rejection, and loss, because I believe the two, boldness and persecution, go hand in hand. I believe if we are only able to rejoice in the positives and not in the negatives, 
If we can only rejoice in the good times, but not in the bad times, then our boldness for Jesus, it's gonna be short-circuited. It's gonna be short-lived. If our need for safety and comfort and convenience, acceptance and approval, if that trumps our ability to rejoice in difficulties, it will erode our boldness, our witness, and our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. And you can thank God that all this persecution is taking place in other countries. But do not be fooled and do not be complacent. It is here and it is coming to this country. Oh, that's fear-mongering. Well, it's also a call to prepare yourselves. It's also a call to look at your heart and say, do I believe this strongly enough that I am willing to suffer? I am willing to face persecution. I am willing, even if need be, to die because of what I believe. And if you're not, you probably really don't believe at all. So as we continue to pursue and to ask God to increase, to magnify our boldness for him, we also need to remember, don't ever forget, that we must rejoice in the fruit of that boldness because some of the responses we will receive will make rejoicing difficult and challenging. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice. There's that word again. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. My challenge to us in this day and age of the church is to remember the response of that very first church, those very first believers in that very first century, and that is to rejoice in the midst of whatever trials and tribulations, suffering, persecution, that may come with that increase, that magnification of boldness, that no matter what you may have gone through or what you may yet to go through, that we have the choice to rejoice in the Lord. Amen? You're awfully quiet in here this morning. We're going to gather around an event that was suffering for Jesus, but it was an event that also brings us great joy. Because in this event, when his body was broken, his blood was shed, he said, my body is broken for you. My blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sin. Every time you do this, do it remembering I suffered, I paid the price 
of death so you could have life and to have that life in abundance. And we need to be able to go forth from this place and we need to be living that abundant life and we need to be sharing that message of the gospel that unified that first century, first Christians, the first church. And we need to be unified around that message and to just go forth with great joy and great boldness. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for the witness, for the testimony of that first church, of those first believers. And God, how we oftentimes look at ourselves, God, and we see such distance, we see such a difference in their reaction, the way they lived for you, and our reaction, and the way that we live for you. And God, we're just asking, Lord, that you would just again give us confidence, give us boldness, increase your power, your presence in us, that God, we are willing to go and to do what they did. God, even if it involves paying the price that they paid, And so, God, I just ask, Lord, that you would just come and that, God, again, you would just pierce our hearts. God, that you would pierce through the comfort, through the convenience that oftentimes is equated with our faith and our walk with you. And, God, would you just bring us to a place where we're willing to just walk away from that if need be and to just be bold And God, just to to rejoice in what you have done for us. That God, we would go and Lord, be able to proclaim that message. God, that you again would just stretch forth your hand. And God, that you would do wonders and miracles and signs among the people. That they would know that your power and your presence is there among them. And that God, you would draw them unto yourself through us. Lord, we desire to be your ambassadors sent from your kingdom to the kingdom of darkness. God, may we go as light bearers. May we go as light proclaimers. And again, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunities you've given this past week. God, as Jim talked about, open doors even this week, God, that you're gonna open doors for conversations. You're gonna open doors for manifestations of your power. And God, give us the boldness, the courage to walk through those doors and just share that life-changing message of the gospel that has been shared with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.